I served on a jury once, and if that makes you doubt both the stability and effectiveness of the American justice system, well, just imagine how I felt when I got the summons. But I have to say the experience went pretty well, and justice, I think, was served by 12 random people and two alternates who definitely jumped in the jury pool with preconceived notions about the case. Justice was most definitely not served by Phil from the hardware store, but I'll get to him soon enough. The relevant point for today's episode is that the whole experience gave me a great idea for a way to change the way America chooses its representatives, crafts legislation, and makes laws. The dogs and I once again raise America's proverbial hood and tinker with the metaphorical engine that is our governing document on this episode of I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News. I know what you're thinking. You, sir, are no kind of constitutional scholar, and your assessments are colored by your unreasonable antipathy toward the sovereign waffle-producing nation of Belgium. Therefore, you should be the last person to propose making changes to the U.S. Constitution. Not only are you correct in your assertion, but you are not the first to think that. But here we are. Most juries are, pardon my French, petite juries of six to twelve people as opposed to grand juries, which are larger and are used to determine if there is sufficient evidence of a crime to proceed with indictment. There are also coroner's juries, used to increase public confidence in the cause of death findings of your town's coroner, who quite possibly got elected to his post, medical knowledge and experience notwithstanding. Apparently, anyone can be coroner if he gets enough votes, even if he's just someone who never went to medical school and just likes hacking up dead bodies. Those other two juries sound way more fun than the one I ended up on, but one cannot really pick and choose the manner of the disposition of one's civic duty. Except for Phil from the hardware store. He, apparently, can. Juries are picked at random from the voter pool and are required to report first thing in the morning to the courthouse to see if any of that day's cases require a jury. If a jury is needed, 12 people and two alternates are selected. If there are not enough potential jurors in the pool, Many jurisdictions empower the court to involuntarily impress bystanders in the vicinity of the courthouse. This would be a much more interesting story if I had been involuntarily impressed onto a jury while walking the dogs past the courthouse like an 18th century American sailor captured on the high seas by the British or French navies at a time when our diplomatic relations with those two countries were not at their best. But my jury summons came in the mail, and I went voluntarily. They promised to pay for my parking plus $12 a day, which was a way better deal than American sailors got from the Brits. The two lawyers involved in the case got to ask questions of the jury pool. They each had a number of peremptory challenges, whereupon they could disqualify up to six jurors each for any reason they wanted, or no reason at all. This information was related to me by Phil from the hardware store. Despite the significant size of the registered voter pool in my county, I ended up sitting next to someone I knew. Kind of like going to a summer camp in the mountains a hundred miles from home so your parents can finally get some peace and quiet and seeing one of the kids from your neighborhood. I see you got stuck here too, I said sympathetically, but sitting around all day in the air conditioning is way better than what the British and French did to our sailors 250 years ago. Phil from the hardware store said, you're a weird dude, to which I replied this was not new information. Then he said, 
he wasn't staying anyway. Having recently established that one cannot pick and choose the manner of the disposition of one's civic duty, I said, how? Are you the mayor or something? Are you friends with the judge? Just watch, said Phil from the hardware store. The lawyer started to question the jury pool and it became clear the case was going to be about gun ownership. They asked each juror if they owned a gun. I said no because me having a gun isn't good news for anyone. Phil from the hardware store said, tons. I have tons of guns. Tons, I whispered. Are you planning an armed assault on the gluten-free bakery next to your hardware store? I have lots of guns, Phil whispered back, which was no kind of answer at all. Sunshine Bakery, if you're listening, I love your gluten-free lemon squares. Also, don't park in Phil's lot or put your trash in his dumpster. Word to the wise. Then the prosecuting attorney asked if we felt there should be any kind of restriction on gun ownership, like, should you be able to carry a firearm if you're drunk, even though you have a permit and have passed a concealed carry course? They didn't add, or if you're engaged in a blood feud with an adjacent bakery, but Phil from the hardware store said, I don't believe there should be any restrictions. It's my gun. I should be able to do whatever I want with it, anytime I want, under any circumstances. Sunshine Bakery, if you're listening, maybe it's time to relocate. When the attorneys got the challenged jurors, Phil from the hardware store was the first one they sent packing. Pun intended. I took the whole day off, he said to me on his way out. Guess I'll go play a few rounds of golf. I had to stay, because they picked me for the jury. The case was indeed about guns. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it even these many years later, but in broad strokes, a young fellow with a concealed carry permit got rip-roaring drunk at a bar, was peripherally involved in a bar fight that the police broke up, was warned by the police he was too drunk to drive, then got pulled over an hour later by the same cops who had told him not to get behind the wheel. When he got out of the car to get his DUI, he reached back inside to get his gun out of the glove compartment. Being three sheets to the wind, as 18th century American sailors used to say, while manning the crow's nest on a British warship against their will, he fumbled around with the gun in such a way that we got to watch police body cam footage of four cops with their guns aimed at him, yelling that they were going to shoot him if he didn't drop his gun right now. He kept trying to clip the gun to his belt. His hand with the gun in it kept going up and down. One of the officers testifying said that his hand with the gun in it pointed in the direction of the officers had come up twice. If it had come up a third time, they could have shot him dead and not been in any trouble for it. I couldn't help but think that had this happened in a different jurisdiction, he'd have been killed. He was charged with a misdemeanor mainly to teach him a lesson, but he pleaded not guilty and insisted on a jury trial. He claimed that he should be able to do whatever he wanted with his gun, anytime he wanted, under any circumstances. Phil from the hardware store was his dream juror. Needless to say, we had our work cut out for us when it came to deciding what to do. But before the 14 of us were sent back to the jury room, the judge sternly informed us what the rules were and the penalties for breaking them. We weren't allowed to discuss the case with anyone except those of us on the jury. We were particularly warned against talking about the case with the lawyers and witnesses involved, and most certainly not the defendant. We could not accept what the judge called material consideration in exchange for our vote. I'm no legal expert, but I think his honor was talking about bribes. If we had questions about the law as it pertained to the case, we could send written questions to the judge who would answer them if he thought they were relevant. 
If we broke any of these rules, we would be subject to contempt of court, which came with fines and jail time. We were told by the judge to forget any preconceived notions or beliefs we might have about the circumstances of the case and be guided solely by the evidence presented and the relevant case law. We also got perks, like free courthouse parking. This episode is brought to you by the one time that a congressional leader handed out lobbyist campaign donation checks to members of the House of Representatives right there in the House chamber. One time. Yeah, okay, sure, Stacy. In this case, a PAC, that is a political action committee, that is big business with their grubby fingers in politicians' pockets, I'm sure not in a creepy way, and again in this case, specifically financed by the tobacco companies, sent 59 campaign donation checks to the House Republican Conference chairman and future Speaker of the House, John Boehner, in June 1995. Ohio Representative Boehner, and thanks again, Stacy, for telling me how to pronounce this one ahead of time, just figured that the best place to find all 59 of those House members was right there on the House floor, a truly simple but brilliant deduction. So he handed out a bunch of checks right there, right on the Congressional floor. There was no tobacco legislation being debated that day, so I guess all that money did the tobacco industry no good at all. Or did it? A week or so later, the House Appropriations Committee voted against an amendment that would have eliminated the government's price support program for tobacco products. Seven members of the Appropriation Committees had received checks from the tobacco lobby in the days before their vote. A truly astonishing coincidence for certain. While the practice wasn't illegal, by which I mean the practice of an industry lobby sending checks to a congressman and having them distributed right there on the people's house like it's Christmas morning and John Boehner is a grumpy chain-smoking Santa Claus, some members of Boehner's caucus who witnessed the act were a little upset and started to complain. I'm not sure, though, if they were upset about the open bribery in the same place where John Quincy Adams fought against slavery and Abraham Lincoln said America's war with Mexico was a naked land grab, or just the fact that they didn't get any money for themselves. But, as Boehner later noted, they were all appalled by it. Boehner said, quote, I thought, yeah, I can imagine why somebody might be upset. It sure doesn't look good. You think. Future Speaker Boehner said he wouldn't do it again, which came as a huge relief to most of America, since lobbyists would no longer be able to send checks to congressmen in exchange for votes. Oh wait, apparently Future Speaker Boehner just meant he wouldn't hand the checks out on the House floor. But of course, there would still be plenty of checks. Finally, in 1997, the House changed its rules to prohibit members from knowingly giving campaign contributions to colleagues on the House floor, Speaker's lobby adjacent to the House floor, and even the Democratic and Republican and cloakrooms. However, the remaining 3.96 million square miles of the United States, well, that should be just fine. The members could also, I suppose unknowingly, drop the checks on the floor in the vicinity of the recipient, kind of like a mob boss saying, I'm just gonna leave this big check next to your shoe. If you pick it up, well, maybe that's just on you because you hate littering or something like that. Federal law once prohibited members of Congress from receiving campaign money in the buildings where they discharge their official duties, but not anymore. Now they can just ask for money while sitting in their congressional offices. This, of course, would be a major blow to American lobbyists who would now have to walk an extra 10 feet to hand out a bribe to an elected member of Congress to get them to vote their way. And I'm sure that'll teach them. Since my introduction to jury service was guided by the eminent legal theorist Phil from the hardware store, I expected to find a biased jury that would decide the case in half an hour, and I'd have the rest of the day free to either shoot a few rounds of golf with Phil or shoot some holes in Sunshine Bakery's dumpster with the guns from Phil's arsenal. But we were there all day, 
Judging from the discussions in the jury room, I guess that more than half the folks in the room were what you'd call pro-gun, and the rest ranged from definitely anti-gun to indifferent. We focused on the case at hand and sent questions to the judge. We broke for lunch and I wandered outside, safe from interference and bribes because of my jury badge. I was untouchable. We, the jury, came up with a ruling around 6 p.m. that day, and in my opinion, it was fair, and considered the law and definitely not all the pre-existing biases we held. Justice was served, and it gave me an idea. What if we picked Congress the same way we pick our juries and subjected them to the same kind of rules? This may sound as unhinged as mounting an expeditionary force to Europe to get Belgium back in line, but hear me out. Pick 12 people per congressional district and 12 more throughout the state to be candidates for the Senate. Each candidate gets equal airtime, so they can go on TV and the internet and tell you why you should vote for them, or why you shouldn't. Each candidate has the right to say whatever they want, even if it's, whatever you do, don't vote for me. If I get elected, I'm going to party hard in Georgetown and never show up to a congressional session. Fine. Much like the peremptory challenges each lawyer got in jury selection, we can cross those folks off the list. The parties would have nothing to say about it. They didn't pick these candidates. They will certainly try to cozy up to them and see who they like and offer campaign money, but there's really nothing to buy. Each candidate gets the same stuff, free and equal airtime. They can start a website and talk about how they would solve things like abortion, climate change, guns, healthcare, national debt, taxes, and so on. But the playing field is pretty level. They can debate in public if they want. It would be something if all these organizations like the Chambers of Commerce and others who have an interest in public policy would host a series of televised debates so we can see if our fellow citizens can think on their feet and what kind of leader they would be without partisan talking points force-fed to them by whoever was footing the bill for their TV ads. Then we vote. Whoever gets the most votes wins and off to Washington they go. And they get all the same perks. Salary, support staff, and office on Capitol Hill, the whole nine yards. But once in office, it's jury rules. They can sponsor a bill and their colleagues, if they have questions about things like constitutionality or how the bill interacts with current law, they can ask the judge, which in this example might be the Supreme Court. Or we can form a congressional advisory boards of legal experts, scientists, military men, foreign policy experts, engineers, and so on, in order that any question a congressman might have can get an answer. In fact, even if we don't enact Congress by jury, this advisory board sounds like a good idea. America has world-class experts in every field of study. Let's put it to use in government. No one can talk to them about any pending legislation. Not political parties, not lobbyists, not the President of the United States. No one can offer them money to vote a certain way. In fact, much like a jury, the only other people they can talk to about the legislation they have to vote on would be other congressmen. And their deliberations would be secret, just like a jury. Sorry about that, C-SPAN. We're shutting off your camera feed. They would be term limited, 12 years and out, so they can run for re-election a few times against a dozen people from their state or district whose names were picked at random. If they win again, great. If not, they can retire from Congress with the same pension and perks retired legislators get now. Who loses in this scheme? Political parties, which are a billion-dollar-a-year industry. They can try to influence legislation with sweet reason and persuasion, but no money. Because that would be a bribe. Industry lobbies like tobacco, energy producers, automakers, bankers, and so on would be barred from Capitol Hill. 
and the other 3.96 million square miles of the United States. They could run ads on TV in the Washington, D.C. media market if they like, but their direct access to congressmen and senators would be over. The rich folks of the country looking for a tax break would have the same option. They can write articles or start a YouTube channel in hopes of enough representatives seeing it, but the glorious days of writing checks in exchange for votes would be over. We would be summoning average Americans picked at random to do their duty to their country and their fellow citizens. We would provide them with all the tools they need to do the job and none of the corrupting influences that make our current Congress the dysfunctional pack of angry toddlers it is now. If we can pick names out of a hat to provide justice, why not laws? I feel like it would surely be an improvement over what we have now. Like George Washington and Abe Lincoln and the Roosevelt boys, I believe that Americans will do the right thing. Winston Churchill once said that Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else, but he was a crabby British drunk who enjoyed being naked and whose ancestors very likely impressed American sailors into the British Navy. I also suspect that Winston never turned down a Belgian waffle. Most of us, I believe, would take the job seriously and do it to the best of their ability, like the jurors I spent a day with that one time. But maybe not Phil from the hardware store. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like early access to new episodes, and some incidents where I actually watch the news and rant about it. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the show on the air, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash not allowed to watch the news, and thank you for your support. Also, while you're there, you might get to see exclusive photos and videos of the dogs who support this podcast. Time for you to weigh in. Post something on the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News Facebook page, even if it's just a picture of your own long-suffering pets. If you think we should send a heads-up to Sunshine Bakery about their armed and cranky next-door neighbor, or if you think there's a better way to pick lawmakers than a random crapshoot, you can Twitter to at NotAlloudPod. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to Not Allowed to Watch the News. And as always, tell everyone you know who's disturbed about the direction the country is going in about us. We definitely need to stick together. Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now.